dedicated to reviews and discussion of TV, movies, and books. Look for us at Daily Review on Facebook and Twitter and dailyreview.com on the web. That's D-A-L-E-Y review.com. This is Paul Daly here with my wife, Caroline. Hey, guys. And today we're here to discuss the third episode of the second season of Hulu's Handmaid's Tale. This one is called Baggage. This one was well more than 50 pounds, Paul. You're going to be charged I the extra fee. This is about 25% literally meaning stuff you carry onto an airplane, given the way that the episode ends. Yeah. And then the other 75% is that new word, new, new meaning for baggage, meaning like the emotional drama you drag right. around with you wherever you go. Well, let's unpack that baggage, Paul. We'll start off with some flashbacks. From past comments on this podcast, you may recall that I have mentioned that the only part of the book that wasn't fully mined in the first season of Handmaid's Tale was the stuff concerning her mom and that we were both expecting her mom to figure prominently into the second season some way. This is the episode where they cash in on that expectation. Yeah, absolutely. We get all the way back to where June is with her mom as a kiddo, and she is being taken to what appears to be different women's rallies and protests and whatnot, and how like wide-eyed and amazed she was by all of it, and how passionate her mother was. And continuing through the flashbacks, they show that the mom absolutely stays 100% engaged. Passionate is like what you say about someone that has like a normal job and then they come home and then they do watercolors. They're passionate about their their painting. Right? Oh, okay. So would you call her more like a zealot? Yeah, I would call her freakishly into it. Uh, yeah, but I would say in this day and age that we're in when The Handmaid's Tale, I mean, if you're looking back, it, she doesn't look like a zealot. She looks woke, man. She looks woke to the situation and, you know, she's just recognizing that like for decades, her mom has been aware of the threat that, you know, various laws or bannings or, you know, whatever, even just anti-protest, anti-women situations could bring. Woke in apparently a very ineffective way because Gilead exists. And her mom, as we will see later, probably doesn't. See, I didn't take it like that. It was ineffective per se, as much as it was just such a small minority of people that actually continued to stay focused. And part of the issue, I think, is that whenever you have that slice of our population that is always protesting something, I think that for the remainder of the population, you get so used to it that you don't even read their signs anymore. You don't pay right. attention to what the cause of the week is because I'm currently watching Grace and Frankie and the the husband Saul like completely gets involved in protesting. And it's literally like, what are we protesting this week? It's like the bagel shop. Now we're protesting, you know, the animal rights area. Like it's just it's always something. And I think in that regard, what you're saying when you're saying ineffective, I do think that somehow their voices got drowned out. That's probably right. It reminds me of uh, anytime I see an article that says the ACLU is blah, 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 doing something. It just turns into blah, 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 because they're always doing something. Okay, and nothing's and amazing about what they're doing. I'll give you a great example of that, too. Um, I sometimes can feel that way about PETA because I really 
really love PETA for that for all the good they do for animals. However, there was like a case recently where PETA went to court in order to fight about whether a monkey who had stolen a camera off of a tourist and took a selfie had copyright rights to that selfie the monkey had taken. Now, see, that delegitimizes your entire organization. And that's what I'm talking about, because guess what? The courts ruled that only human beings have copyright rights. So, I mean, shock. (laughs) This wasn't in the monkey jungle court. Mertz had no ability to cash in on his own picture. His likeness. You can tell, though, stuff like that is like, you know, that's when it gets difficult at times to really focus in on every single cause because some of them can get so blurry and and sort of, um you use the word ineffective, but I'll use the word like, they get into the minutia sometimes in a way that feels like I can't possibly keep up with having a job and a family and to everything and pay attention to every single cause, which is actually kind of brought up because, you know, we have her, we have June come in when her mom's friends are, you know, gathering post protest and they're all, they have all these bumps and bruises and, and, you know, get hit with a bottle and all that kind of stuff. And June is, you know, somewhat concerned, but the rest of them are not in much the same way that we're saying we get desensitized. So, do they apparently you know to the outcry of what they're doing but when she explains to her mom and her friends that she is a a publisher in publishing and that she actually just got a promotion her mom's retort is that her one friend is starting a and this is her quote like queer website and it was like one of those things where i don't know it's treated like a tit for tat like a well this is something and what you're doing is nothing kind of feeling to it of course i mean that was like her whole message was like you're doing nothing and we're all doing something but it it also seems a lot like that same thing like that my that section of the population that is protesting also seems to get completely dulled to what the rest of the people are doing and that you could have any value to your life unless you're doing what they're doing. So it's like it, it's like a two-way street on that ignoring part. Right. What I got out of that scene was that June, even though she was in a, in a, a room full of her mom's friends who she's probably known a very long time, she instantly felt way out of place. You know, they even commented on what she was wearing. She was just wearing what she wore to work. She wasn't trying to impress anybody. Oh, but it was a sharp outfit. Like, I mean, the other the other women were definitely wearing more bohemian, more loose and flowing kind of clothes. And her outfit was like tailored and was like very nice material and stuff. No doubt, probably made of some animal products along the way, you know, or she probably probably. she probably had no idea, you know, that like a sweatshop had made the, the jacket or something. You know, that was kind of the point was that there was no way that what she was wearing was possibly not infringing on one of the protests, you know, (laughs) that they had engaged in. That continues with uh, the next flashback where her mom just lays lays into her in a couple different directions. I mean, I'm going to jump to the end and I'm going to say like, I don't know how she stuck around. I really don't know either. I mean, except for that, it seemed that she was fairly, you know, used to her mom questioning things that she had decided and her mom feeling like she raised her one way. Clearly, I mean, June has to have gone to college, has to have pursued this this publishing or some sort of English or literature <laughs> right. degree. So, I mean, this wasn't like just all of a sudden right. she became interested in books and, you know, that's right. the thing. So it's like, uh, I mean, I don't know why the mom is still saying things like, well, when you were a little girl, you know, you wanted to be this or that. And it was like, yeah, but mom, I mean, <laughs> clearly for probably at least minimum a decade, she has been pursuing something else. Right. 
So it, it was kind of a surprise to have the mom be so like, I don't know, flippant and, and just, I mean, straight up rude. Now, everything when it comes down to Luke, that's a bit of a different situation. Right. I mean, because, I mean, it's rude, exact the way she did it. But as a mom, I could see where a lot of moms totally uncomfortable with the idea of your daughter being involved with this person that had to offload a previous spouse in order to be with them, have a child out of wedlock, which I guess is super common these days. But back when I was a boy, it wasn't really the way it was done. <laughs> and well, and I don't even know if the if the mom really is feels that way, like in terms of like she didn't ever mention Dad. really the kiddo. She really didn't even mention, you know, the the situation with, you know, like you said, June's father or anything. I to her, it seemed like she was more against that traditional, you know, you're going to get married so young, you're going to you basically this idea that the mom had sacrificed and June is just settling. She's just kind of falling into the status quo. She's not questioning things anymore. She's just sort of just doing what's expected, you know. I think that that but I think that that's totally the cycle. I mean, for revolutionaries to expect that they spawn other revolutionaries is very selfish of those revolutionaries, right? Because Aren't they doing it so that future generations don't have to in be theory, revolutionaries? I mean, in theory, and yeah. June I mean, is a grown up and apparently she's made up her mind that things are okay. We don't know how far this is into the Gilead progression. Maybe it's not anywhere into it. Well, yet. this is before Luke and you know? her got married. So we know it's somewhere between them starting to date and then being married. So things are so. starting to get bad, but maybe aren't. Nobody's having kids anymore. And oh, know, clearly, yeah. The, I I can't believe that 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 was. I mean, if like, Hannah's around, then then yes, that's already happened. Right. But Gilead hasn't happened yet. No, no, no. So they're still not. in that ratcheting up. No one's quite sure what's going on phase. And I think you're right about the idea of like generationally with like people who have a cause to fight for. And then I think it is very natural for that next generation to feel like I can relax a little bit because someone did fight for me. I can kind of cool out. And it is to the you know much to the chagrin of the fighter because they feel like, damn, you know, I did all this fighting and now you just sit on your butt all day. But at the same time, like you said, isn't that why you fought? So that I, your, your kiddo wouldn't have to fight? Right. I would think. I don't know. But I, I mean, I appreciated the way that June handled that and that she did not stalk off, that she opened the cabinet door and like hid her face, you know, so her mom didn't see her eyes filling up with tears. That's a patented move, Paul, in case you don't know of women, like they would go in the other room and sort of like do something to kind of obscure Well, it reminded their face. me of uh, Peggy Olson. Remember, that was like a routine for the women at, oh, at yeah. Sterling Cooper was they would go into the, into the bathroom and, and, cry. And, and stare into the mirror and cry for a while. Yeah. And then they, they would be like, not at work. Get out of here. Not with that. And not as if like, what's the matter with you? But like, stiff upper lip, get out of here. She didn't hate her mom's guts. No, not at all. I mean, and that's what I mean about hiding her face. It's like there are plenty of shows that we would have watched in which that would have been the break of their relationship, that they would have said like, I can't believe you, mother. I'm never speaking to you again and would have walked out. While on one hand, I know some some percent of people would do that. For my own life, that would have been very unrealistic. I, I would have sucked it up and been like, oh, my God, I feel awful. I'm, I am like crying behind the, the cabinet door, but I'm not going to walk away from my mom. And that's what I really love about June's character. She does things so similarly to the way that I feel like I would do things that don't necessarily match TV and mm. certainly not TV heroine type characters. Like she does the hard things sometimes that like, I mean, I know I have, we have a lot of crossover, so I can bear her a lot in my head to someone like Katie Bowman. And I think like, what would Katie do? And like, she just... 
she's so much stronger, June is, and so much more. She doesn't have those like outbursts like I think Katie would in this scenario. She'd be like, Mom, you don't know him. I love Will. Whatever, you know. But I feel like June like just sucks it up and like takes it in a way that I feel like that's so much more realistic. Yeah. You know, that you would. So, you know, then we have this other flash of them riding in the car together in the convertible. And you have June and her mom. And, you know, they're the mom's barefoot and her feet are up on the dashboard. And she's clearly that kind of mom, you know. You're listening to Gwen Stefani's Hollaback Girl. It has a couple different different meanings that we found. Caroline, would you uh, help me figure out what hollaback girl means? It is the idea that if you're going to yell back at, if you're going to yell at a woman, basically, or a girl, and she is not going to engage in just verbal insults, she's going to take it to the next level. So she's not somebody who's just going to like talk the talk without taking action. So when you see like June and her mom saying that, it's like, it's like we're the warriors who are going to take it to the next level. You know, we're not just going to yell back at you. We're going to actually come at you and punch you in the face. It's a come at me, bro kind of song. Something that took June a little longer to come to grips with when things started to attack her in the same way that her mom always felt things were attacking her uh, throughout her life, apparently. And it's like kind of upbeat in this kind of radio friendly kind of way, but but it really fits both women just kind of at different points in their life. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I mean, definitely at the time that June is thinking about this, it's the time when she's deciding she can't afford to just like be do tit for tat here, you know, where she's like, well, so far the way she's handled everything as being hands made is sort of, you know, there is some amount of not going along, but she's never taking it to the next level per se. Right. She's, she's, she's waiting. She's biding her time. She's, she's trying to fight back, but like in the smallest amounts possible as, you know, to damage control for herself, obviously. But, you know, being a holler back girl is like, no, like you're willing to take damage and give damage in a much bigger way. So that sets us up for this reminder flashback that if, if it does go sequentially where it's like June was a little girl, then it's like she first got her job. Then she's clearly having some moment with the convertible with her mom. We don't know when that time is exactly. But then we have her actually in Aunt Lydia's intro to Gilead class 101. Right. You've already been issued your wimples oh my and God. it's time for the slideshows. Interesting that they use good old fashioned slide jet decks for this kind of what thing. Is. Do you think it's just that that's like the least amount of technology really? Well, it's probably the least dangerous technology because a computer, someone might be True. interested in trying to hack into an email or whatever. Um, but I was thinking like VCRs and TVs, all that stuff even, I guess like this would be like literally just a light bulb shining through yeah, a photograph. It is. That is all it is. It's the most simple way to be able to do this. But you were uh, you were dead on with mom and where she probably is now. Yeah. They were describing how bad things can get as a result of, you know, the stuff that they've needed to do to remediate society. And so they're talking about the colonies and right when they bring up how, you know, how shitty they have it in the colonies, that's when they show her mom getting like a gigantic bag of feed or something, something. off of a truck and having to slump it over over her shoulder like like a construction worker or something. You yeah. Know? And I mean, if you can imagine, you know, as as this person in your life who has always represented the willingness to fight and the willingness to stand up, having this photographic evidence of her 
having to just go along to get along here, you know, is like, oh, my God, like they broke my mom of all the people in the world. You know, it's it's more than just seeing your mother on the screen. It's that your mom was one of the most outspoken hardest fighting people on the in this line of defense you want to hope like she was still out there fighting for you somewhere and it's like they broke her what does that mean for me you know Mm, yeah it means it's i mean it would feel pretty inescapable like oh my god um, that you could do nothing to impact the situation if someone that only stood to impact the situation is is caught, broken down, and carrying the feed. Yeah, it's bad news for you. And is and is having to be so compliant that she's actually literally the poster woman. You know? <laughs> oh, right. The poster woman for the colonies. I mean, that is a level of like holy Well, she didn't crap. have PETA to go to court to argue for her. Uh, for know, her copyright. Copyright right, for her photo. Right. That's true. That's very true. So she's at the same status as a monkey. I, I, yeah, a monkey who stole... Your your camera and took a picture of itself. You know the monkeys in their court were probably like you know it's racist to say we all look alike, which is you know how we would be like monkeys all look the same. You know, <laughs> so how can you copyright your own likeness if you look like all the other monkeys? Well, I think too, it's like you don't have any currency, monkey. So <laughs> how would I even pay you for your likeness? Right. Is the bigger question. In and bananas, the, of obviously, course. bananas, obviously. B a n a n a s. Way to bring it round there, Paul. Way to bring it round. Uh, Moving on to somebody who has been quite broken. We have Moira. and um, Bridging the little gap there. There's a moment in the dorm. Oh, yes. After the slideshow where where those two are talking, Moira and June. And Moira's doing what she can to comfort her friend. Because I'm sure that she knows the depth of their friendship that we've seen from the past season shows that she's the kind of friend that would know that she and her mom have, have hot and cold like seasons, years, I'm sure, you know? See, and to me too, I feel like what Moira might be saying is something like, don't worry, it's not going to be so bad for us because we know that your mom was running an abortion clinic. And even we knew that that was a dangerous thing to do. And you even told her to stop doing it. And she was continuing to do it. So she was in this like really spotlit, breaking the rules position. So she may be getting punished at that level, as we saw in that picture. But surely me and you, June, who are just living our lives, our lives won't be so hard as that because we weren't doing that thing that you even told her to stop doing. And then she offers the cold comfort of, well, and she won't have to suffer very long out there. Oh, God. That's some wicked cold comfort. I agree. Yes. So let's go back to the future with Moira. Yeah, present day. So Moira, uh, this was a very interesting combination of scenes we had with Moira. I appreciated the the jogging scene with the memorial wall. Um, I like that that, that she was listening to the same music as as June in in her jogging scene. Me too. I was going to say there was such a beautiful parallel in in the beginning scenes for both of those women where you have June, you know, jogging around the newspaper plant and checking the memorial wall and making sure that everything looks good. Talking about, you know, that over over voice that that happens, voiceover that happens where they say, you know, women are so adaptable. And like, you know, it's it's crazy how adaptable we really are. And it's true. I mean, I've met women who it's like, I wish I could hold up a mirror and show you what you're putting up with in your life, because I don't think you even realize how much you've just gotten used to that situation. And it's not normal and it's not okay. And I feel like that was definitely what both Moira and 
June are existing with right this second, even though it looks so, so different. So let's get into Moira's um, new life here in Canada. She successfully made it out. If you guys remember from season one, she had made it into Canada and was living with Luke and our no-name pal, who we know as Aaron from um, Colony. Yeah, her, her the actress is Aaron Way, so we just call her Aaron, even though I'm sure she has a character name. But Aaron's good enough. So, um, like you were saying, like the stuff that you have to get used to as a woman, I, you know, apparently men are just in unadaptable. Like we're just set a, a certain way. And if it doesn't happen that way, then we break or something. Well, but um, let me be clear. I, I think that I think that if look at Game of Thrones, one of the reasons why certain characters, specifically men, stand out, say Reek. Reek. Uh-huh. Okay. What's his name? Uh Theon. Okay, take Theon. And and even take Peter Dinklage's character. What's Tyrion. It? Tyrion. Those two men stand out so much because they are quote unquote adaptable compared to the other men who are actually extremely rigid in the way that they behave. They have these like set set ways that they will do things and they really are not flexible in the way they handle things. Now, are things good for Theon? No, hell no. But the point <laughs> is, is that, but for survival's sake, he has changed in ways that so many other people didn't. Now, look at the women. How many different changes have so many Sansa, Cersei, um, Khaleesi. Khaleesi. How about the little one? What's the little girl's name? He's not so little anymore. He's now turned into like a ninja. Shit, Maisie Williams, um, Arya Stark. Yeah. So take that. Take all the main women. How many different times have you seen them change, adapt, flexible, make different, live in different situations with different people, with different rules and different expectations on them versus the men? There's only two that stand out for me as like the main two, like had to change everything of what they were doing to just live. I mean, can you see the difference? Okay, I guess you turned it on me there with my own show. So I guess I, I, I see it. I mean, and I think that for the most part, though, a lot of times that happens, like for Cersei, say, I know we're like really talking Game of Thrones. It happens because you're a mother and you'll do anything for your children. And when that happens, that's different. Where as opposed to... There is a paternity question marks for some of the people, you know, meaning that their fathers had nothing to really, they didn't do everything for their children. They had other motivations too. Whereas there's a lot of women who are basically fully driven by, you know, their children. And so that adaptability comes into play. Moira, this is such an interesting thing. Kids don't come into play here, but let's, let's talk a little bit about, you know, what she is going through. We get little snips along the way. She has this strange living scenario now where it's like Luke, Aaron, if we're going to call her the, the, the non-talking nonverbal friend, um, and Moira all living in this apartment together. And Luke is on a couch. That's like his spot, right? I think he's trying to be respectful of the women. I mean, they've both been through a lot. So my guess is that it's probably a two-bedroom apartment, or maybe it's even only one bedroom and the girls' women share one room. He's like a six-foot guy. That's a pretty good sacrifice because he's got to curl up on a couch. How would how would how else would it work? The women should share the couch. Shit. Well, maybe it's a two-bedroom. I don't know. No, I think that he's been through very little compared to them. Yeah, he got right out. It, it, 
and they've been abused to the point of the one is nonverbal. I mean, it's pretty bad. There was a little conversation that I I, I wish I, I had heard more clearly. And I apologize because we didn't get a chance to watch it like five or six times like we normally do. But there was some conversation that Luke was having that the military had something to do with being on the border and right. that they were getting ready for some sort of invasion in upstate New York. Is the Canadian Army and the British Army were massing on the border. Very intriguing. Very intriguing. Yeah. I mean, you you don't normally root for people to invade the continent of the United States, but in this case, that's okay because oh the United God, States isn't please, there anymore. So. Please. So we see that Moira has a job and it appears to be that she is like part of the welcome center for new people that are getting brought over refugees from the U.S. And they have this one gentleman who she's welcoming in and trying to help acclimate. And he kind of just has these couple one-line sputterings of like, he was in the army. Basically, he saw stuff. He was shell-shocked very much by everything that happened. All that could really happen is Moira was like, you know, it'll get easier. You know, you're okay. Very much not wanting to delve into what his problems were. Like, she wasn't like, oh, tell me more. She was like, you're going to be okay right this way. Let's just get at your stuff. Turn that frown upside down. Grab your shit and let's get out of here. Maybe that's the sit, And maybe that's because that's what she deals with with literally every single person who comes through the door, you know, may very well be exactly like that. And so, you know, if she got bogged down in everybody's story, she would be in shambles. So she lucked out. She must have got an actual Canadian when she came over because he was like, get some coffee just take your time he was he was like that but also she didn't try to spill her guts he was trying to spill his guts and she wanted no guts Mm, good point spilt you know spill your tea elsewhere sir so for sure she didn't want to hear it um and she she looked so beautiful so put together you know such such a um again like that tailored outfit that she was wearing that again just harkened back over to june's story where she was like i just came from work and she was like really just so well dressed and everything and you know after after seeing these women in these you know, gigantic garbage bag capes of dresses and stuff. And to see them in well-fitting, you know, nice clothing is like such a breath of fresh air. But it's all external, Paul. Moira's doing good externally. Yeah, she seems to be coming apart at the seams. Some of the stuff that, uh, I don't know if it would weigh on you exactly, but they showed, it would on me, that, that when part of her jog was she jogged by what appeared to be basically like a memorial to America, basically. Like yeah. this was America in this pile of plaques and and wreaths and flags yeah, and stuff like that. Definitely like a memorial. And that's part of her every day, seeing the, what, um, you know, as an American, that it does make up some amount of my identity, right? That, oh, yeah. And so to see it, remember how it was kind of, kind of thing is... That'd be something tough to 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 work with every day, I think. I and, agree. And I mean, between that and the fact that her actual job is to have these people who are fresh from the hell that is America that she has to actually, you know, bring over feels like, my God, like, I don't know who thought she was ready for that job. Right. You know, she has to go by the memorial wall to jog by to come over here and had the huddled people come across the border like, man, guys, this was really a lot. So she does what a lot of us would do and drowns her sorrows in a glass of alcohol. Yeah, that was uh, that was interesting. This is the second time we've seen a club in the world of The Handmaid's Tale. The first time was 
uh, Jezebels in the first season. And that was, of course, only for the delight of the commanders. And this, however, looks to be a Toronto club. Just and and anybody can be there doing whatever they need to do to to let off steam. It's interesting to see the contrast, right? Absolutely, because the I lighting mean, was different. Uh, you know, it had like that. What was it like? Purple and red kind of lights that were kind of bathing all the scenes having to do with the snippet. Well, so I mean, are you thinking that this was an unusual kind of bar? Or? No, I think it was a very normal, kind very of, normal kind of place. Yeah, I thought so too. Very normal. So when the two of them sort of looked at each other across the bar and decided to go in the bathroom, now I'm not like a one night stand bathroom kind of girl, but. I understood that that was like, you know, I'm sure a very commonplace, you know, it's certainly, you know, as the night goes on, that's certainly the kind of stuff that happens. The question mark for me was that she, how do I want to say this? I felt like she was, she was going through the motions maybe, or even maybe accidentally halfway through her encounter, she kind of switched over into like, this was her job back at Jezebel's. So it's like maybe she, as Moira, was into it, you know, and was attracted to this woman and did go into the bathroom. But then at some point, it like wasn't her. She like maybe had like an out of body experience. Right. When she flipped over to become Ruby, which was what she said. That's that. Yeah, that, right. that's a good way to explain that. Um, just that mentally she was just like, it's like she accidentally flipped the switch. I feel like it was accidental because I think when she looked at herself in the mirror and the girl, the girl was like, sort of like, oh, if you change your mind, she's like, what's your name? She said, Ruby. I felt like she was kind of like taken aback by that herself. Like, I don't feel like she was like, yeah, I was just playing that part of Ruby just now. Ha ha ha. I think she was like, oh my God, I like slipped into being Ruby just then. And like, that wasn't even me, you know? Mm -hmm. So when she comes home and she's all like, hey, fuck you <laughs> to, <laughs> to Aaron, how shocked were you? And she was like, um, blessed be the Fruit Loops. I, I didn't expect Aaron to do any talking. So, yeah, I, I was amused and delighted that that uh, someone that could have been through so much makes her first words to be just kind of I hope it's not not indicative of her total mental powers after <laughs> having gone through what she what she's gone through. But it's nice that she could still make a joke. Right. And I liked it, too, that when, um, you know, Moira laughed and was like, how long you been sitting on that one? She's like, a while. <laughs> like, you know, she's like thinking of jokes over there in her head. That's actually like kind of hopeful. Right. You know, like maybe she is a little bit more in there than she appeared. Maybe I'll try that sometime when, you know, just go silent for a couple of years and then come <laughs> back with like just a lame joke. And people will be like, yes, yes. <laughs> Yeah, nice, nice. I think Blessed Be the Fruit Loops is pretty funny, though. I don't think it's lame. So, what did you think about the fact that Luke was like pretending to be asleep? Yeah, and like eavesdropping. What's all that about? Oh, I think he was just trying to go to sleep. He's got the he's got the couch duty, and the part about just it was like it was like he didn't want to frighten the bird away, you know, when she spoke. I agree with that. By jumping up and being like, you spoke, you know, like, just be, like, be cool, be cool. Yeah. I've been with you for a couple of years. You haven't said a goddamn thing. Right. <laughs> Moira comes in and swears at you and you finally talk, but okay, let's just, let's just be cool. I feel like that Aaron like knew that Moira is struggling, you know, that she could see that she, she was having a hard time, maybe a hard night, maybe far, far more than that. And so it 
felt like she needed to say something to to kind of break the ice and to kind of like snap Moira out of it, you know, Mm -hmm. to not go down further in that rabbit hole. Hopefully, I I feel so badly for for Moira. I mean, honestly, this is one of those situations for all of them, honestly, where it's like you can physically get out. And this is where the, the title baggage comes from. But you can't really you can't really run away like you're still weighed down by all the things that happened to you and all the things that you've seen and endured and and are still missing. You know, June is still not there. Hannah is still not there. We don't know Aaron's story, so we don't know who she's missing, but you can't run. You know, it's a lot like for us where like, you know, you guys who are listening, you guys know we have three special needs kids and especially when they were very, very small, people would just say to us, well, you should just take a vacation. And it's like, uh, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, yeah, you can do that. You can physically get away, but you can't mentally and emotionally get away. Like that baggage and those worries and stuff stay on your shoulders. No matter how far you try to run, you can't do it. And, and we, luckily we're on the same page with that. Neither of us have tried to run individually um, (laughs) because, you know, it definitely feels like even though the Canadian government has been as welcoming as they have been, and certainly they have been, it's not going to erase what happened to these people. And watching Moira have that mental breakdown, despite the fact that she has a relatively safe life, and yet she basically sought out almost unsafe behavior and that instantly brought back that unsafe feeling Mm. you know yeah and i i just i i I feel awful for her but who i feel even more awful for was our girl june as you mentioned june kicks off the show jogging throughout her newspaper office and uh printing press facility i assume that's what it is but she's got a she got a routine now she's been there for two months yeah listening to the song she's got power so she can keep her iPod charged up and she can exist. People are bringing her food whenever they can. And so, yeah, she's worked out a routine. She's staying fit. She's, you know, making it work. She's adapted. You know, I do have to ask one question just because you brought up the electricity thing. If you had a business and you didn't pay the bills, wouldn't they shut your electricity off? Yes, is yes, the answer. Yes, is the answer. And so... It's a little puzzling to me in a world like Gilead where they have to be rationing something or in some way. I mean, we all know that, like, of course, she's using very little electricity. But still, when she goes around and turns on the lights and stuff, I mean, isn't the spinner spinning? Doesn't somewhere, somewhere, someone know someone's turning the lights on and off? Our electric company here certainly knows when we're turning the lights on and off. And so it just makes me wonder, like, little things like that. I know that that's not gigantic, but I guess what it tells me is is that Gilead is not as well secured or monitored as they would like you to think. Yeah, I think they have intensely insane monitoring in small patches, you know, in the little settlements where they have people living. But then these other parts that I forget what they called, and it wasn't like the Badlands, but it was something like that. It was like the unincorporated areas. Remember, they had to pass through a gate, go outside this safe area in order to get to Jezebel's or get to where Hannah's parents right. live. Not Hannah's parents. Well, you know what I mean, her uh, so, captors. Um, right. So 
it's that in-between area that we're talking about that is largely, this isn't colony, so they don't have drones to go around and make sure stuff is, is, is uh, working. It's, it's more like it's just unmonitored. They've already, they've killed enough people and they've scared enough people away that it's probably empty out there, but they're not really like making sure. Yeah. I mean, and it's, and it's good to note that because it helps in, in especially this particular episode, understand how maybe certain parts could have happened because I think if you if you think of it all like the neighborhood that the Waterfords live in and that level of, you know, serious scrutiny, then it would be very hard to believe the majority of this episode in terms of the way that right. June Guys moves with around. Guns everywhere, eyes just, just embedded everything. in in being able everywhere. to run through the woods, period. Anywhere, anytime, anywhere. That would not it would not be able to happen if it was anything like the Waterford's neighborhood. So it's good to know that because it's good to know that there's definitely like this is not an like an iron wall that's gone down around this area. It's more like a mesh where it's like there's people, but if you can avoid them and if you can sort of wear the right clothes and you kind of blend in, you can kind of seep through the netting, you know, of different areas. It's it's more like a net and less like a cage, if you will, mm. you know, but you can fit through these little holes. So it's kind of interesting because it, it does matter. And it is that kind of like detail that gives me hope that's like, okay, maybe, 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 maybe there's actually more traction here for them to really get her out. So I I liked how she was spending her time and that she was uh, reading all these articles and, and cutting them out. And my guess is she's trying to deconstruct sort of what happened, like working backwards, I guess, sort of reading the old articles, knowing what's going on now and reading old articles and trying to put the pieces together of like, how did we get here? Yeah. Like what was going on and she how did we get Captain here? Captain Hindsight. Yeah, I think super Captain Hindsight. So I thought that was interesting. I thought it was like so um, tone deaf when Nick was like, you need to stop doing that. You're going to make yourself crazy. (laughs) Nick, 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 Nick shows up with coffee that he has stolen from his current boss. And they just, he, he, she likes the coffee, but nothing else he has to say. I have to say though, when he, when she, when she said, you've got to stop stealing this, Rita's going to get really mad. It was one of the first like smacks in the face for me of the fact that Nick goes exactly back to that house yeah, and lives that totally fucked up life. And then comes over to where she's watching friends and jogging and listening to current music and, you know, and like. He would be the absolute most dangerous person to do that. But that is why whenever when you were saying that you were not scared in the last episode that he wasn't going to flip out and just shoot her or or b- take her by gunpoint and say you're going to do what I'm what I say, not shoot her because that's not that's not his M.O. But. That's why he's the scariest character to me, because he can be a chameleon and live in both worlds. And people who can change that much and be that much, he is the man who can adapt. And there ain't nothing more scary than a man who can adapt that much because it's such an anomaly. Men can't adapt like that. Here we have her showing I can be there and I can be here and I can be and I can be an econo wife and I can do. And we're not scared by her ability to switch places. But Nick's ability to be there and here says like, whoa, men don't do that. That's scary. That freaks me out. 
Because think of how nerved up all those like truck drivers and everybody are compared to any of the women you've seen. They're all like, ah, (laughs) right? Because they're like, we don't do this. We don't do this. This is not how we fly, you know? When she was upset with Nick, was was it mainly that it was that he didn't, he kept coming back, but he never had a plan. And she desperately needed to know how she was getting out. And he just kept having no answers. And this was just like another day, no answers. I think that, and I think that that coming and going part two, I think messes with her in a lot of ways in the same, in the same way that we're unnerved by the fact that he can go over there and steal stuff from Rita's kitchen. And that that bizarre call, like I can't even call it a colony because that word is used, but like that weird, that weird, staunch, strict, insane, torturous life, like comes back to where she is, like periodically, even bringing the food and the drink from there. And stuff feels like, you know, like I think it's unnerving, like every time. And then I think she wants him to stay because she's lonely as hell. Right. And. You know, one thing I do want to note is that this has been some amount of time. This is two more months and um, she isn't like showing being pregnant at all. Good point. She was running around those stairs and she was like everywhere and she looked very similar. Now, I know she's only supposed to be like three or four months pregnant, but she's already had a kid before. So that automatically, in case you guys don't know, if it's your first baby, maybe you don't show that much. But usually with your second baby, you, you do start showing quicker. For sure. And by four months, I mean, I can remember, I mean, we, I had my, our kiddos really, really early, but I can definitely tell you that by like four months or a little bit, I mean, you, you definitely, you could tell I was pregnant for sure. For sure. Now it was twins at that point, blah, blah, blah. But (laughs) I'm just saying like, I can remember like going from like a Friday, my clothes fit for work to Monday. I can't wear those pants anymore. Like it happening that quickly. So she was wearing those like way bigger, like kind of athletic shorts which i'm kind of guessing maybe she got out of like one of the guys like maybe they had like a gym or something as a part of their yeah locker something some sort of change of clothes uh or maybe even in their desks how they had all those personal items she did seem to be wearing men's clothes now right as opposed to the other stuff tell you that that i notice what people carry when they go into work i'm just always always watching weird And, and women i've told you this before women at my company it's funny men if we carry anything, we carry one thing and it's like a backpack or nothing very cumbersome at all. Like a briefcase or something simple. But 99% of the women that come into work carry not one, not two, but three bags, a purse, another bag, and another bag. And they have their arms out like they're Sherpas carrying this stuff to their desks. And you told me, well, maybe that's some of that is uh, workout stuff, which we have because a gym. They, they have a free gym at their, so at their place. So it would make sense that she would find a treasure trove of of available workout clothing. That's true. I mean, definitely a duffel bag full of like whatever kind of stuff. And it's, I mean, she doesn't look like unkempt or anything. So it does kind of seem like she's figuring out how to wash her hair and how to, you know, keep up in some way, you know, feeling better about her hair does look silky smooth. It does. It totally does. It makes me just, you know, think that I know that they had said that there were deliveries like when that truck shows up and she says like no deliveries and he's like standing there. First of all, what did you think about this guy? The physical aspect matched up to be like someone and something that she had seen before and could trust. But that is sort of like complacency talking because 
when I saw this guy and he was very dodgy about his answer and trying to be cute and, and saying he doesn't know who Nick is and all that kind of stuff, it made me think like, how can you not know that there at least is a Nick? Is it that how does Nick know that I'm here, but you don't know who Nick is? It was it was almost like he was getting ready to take her someplace that Nick wouldn't know about. Well, at best, you know, I mean, I just I didn't want to trust him, but. She got in the truck. What can I say? She got in the truck. I mean, she got in the truck. I thought it was brave as all get out. I was was really trying to question about would I be willing to get in this truck? But then, you know, she had had this totally new spirit of like, I can't sit around and wait. I have to to make moves. And like you said, she was so sick of Nick not having a move. And this guy was saying it's time to go. I think that Actually, the fact that he didn't know who Nick was, it was legitimate because I, I think that's how like almost all like underground railroad type situations work. Yeah, terror cells. They don't or, know or even each other. from Colony, remember, like the hive people, you know, they don't know other people's names, mm-hmm. all that kind of stuff. And so I think that I don't think that that part was so weird. And even I was shocked that she gave up his name. Like it might have been probably better if she was like who sent you like her searching for a name for him to give rather than be like, do you know my mom, Jojo? And do you know, (laughs) you know, like maybe don't tell all the things and the people who are related to you. Like maybe, you know, like he doesn't know anything about you in theory. You should probably keep it that way, you know, but I would have had so much trouble getting into that truck. He didn't have like a blanket for me to hide under he didn't have a box for me to hide in. And there was gaps between the slats. I mean, if you go by, if you oh go by God. something lit up, you'd see a silhouette inside every of, time, of a person. Honestly, every time we go by a slatted truck, I mean, especially down here, I don't know if this is common everywhere. There's often livestock or or a dog or something like that in the back of a truck. You can tell. I always look too. I'm always like, I'm always like, what is that? Oh, it's a goat. Oh, what is that? Oh, it's a cow. Like I need to know what's in the slats. Like it freaks me out. So. Point blank. Would you get in that truck or no? Not this sister. No way. Not until I had Nick that morning to say the truck's coming later today to, to for it to add up to me um, that this is real. I want to think I would be brave enough to get in that truck because, I mean, obviously the whole point of me being at this place was to get to the stepping stone of the next place and to be able to move on. So I want to think I would get in there. But even in the moment as a viewer, I was scared. I I was scared to get into that truck. And they made such a big deal out of like putting the camera behind the loading dock door coming down like she was already in the truck and they and you watched it go down. And it was like, but that was a safe place. And you had snacks and food and you were watching friends and you're jogging to great music and like. Oh my God. You know, like, I don't, I don't know if I could leave that space, but then at the same time, it's like, was it a matter of time though, before someone was going to find me in this space? Like I had to, I'm a fugitive. Like you can't, you can't just rest on your laurels. You've got to keep moving. Right. That's like, that's the first, listen to me in case, Paul, you don't know when you get your fugitive handbook, the very first page says, keep moving. You cannot stay still you will get found out because that's when even when they find those people who are like 80 years old and they've been on the land for like 50 years. Why is it? Because they bought a house and settled down and tried to get married or tried to do something that was like being still. And the second they get still welcome to prison or worse. Wise words. So she winds up in what looks to be some some sort of it's not a safe house. It is just like a storage area for old traffic. Stuff. Damn, though, that was so 
fascinating. That was fascinating. And goes to your point of this like bordersville that exists between the rest of the world. Then there's this weird neutral zone. And then and then you have kind of the settlements, the settlement. Right. So the strange thing about it is that we knew that they took down the street signs and we knew that it was so effective in disorienting the the handmaids because they couldn't figure out what street they were on. And even though things seemed vaguely familiar, somehow they didn't realize they were in Boston until they really put things together. So when she actually walks over and touches the Logan Airport Boston sign, oh my God. I mean, would that not feel like surreal? It's just another reminder, you know, of of like you're seeing the corpse of something that you didn't know died basically. So yes. it's, it's already dead. It's already here. These are the, these are its remains, you know? And also I think that it's just beyond your fingertips. Like your life is just 10 steps away. Like you can see the street signs that used to be that you passed every day. Like they're physically right here, but they're like not where they should be. So it's like, it's not okay that they're here, but it's like, it's just right here. I mean, I think that's why you'd have to physically touch the sign. Like, like, is this for real? Also, I'd like to say how freaking effective was it for them to take those signage down? Like, I've got to say, like, if you wanted to screw up a a town or a city, simply doing that, taking down all the street signs, taking down all the highway signs, how quickly it becomes like... The highways would be useless. uh, And you're just like so out of it. Like, suddenly there's like no point of reference. And I think missing that point of reference, those small little things along the way, your personal items, the, the those signs, those little things. One of our daughters is deaf and blind. And one of the things that is so interesting about her is that she has amazing orientation and mobility. And the way that it was described to us is if you think of like a warehouse and you have like a nightlight, that would be enough for you to have a point of reference and be able to move around. So no matter how impaired you were, no matter how much you couldn't see or hear, if you has simply had a point of reference, it would be enough for you. And that's what this was all about. Finding those signs and stuff meant that those that your reference points were there. They still existed, but you had to find a new way to identify them. Mm-hmm. Fascinating. And like how reassuring in like a weird way. Like all that had to happen was someone had to find this warehouse and put the signs back up. And life would be like one step closer to normal. Like they weren't all burned in a fire. They're just right here. They're just right here. <laughs> this is where she meets another driver. They exchange little like code word kind of stuff, you know, make yeah. sure they know who each other are. Well, he asks for her mom's maiden name. How funny that they basically use the same old, that's the same old password, right? What's your mom's maiden name? Yeah. Same old, same old, right? Yeah. It's like they could be like, it's a, what was your first pet? But then something goes wrong. I don't know how he found this out. Did he get a text or, or? I don't think so. I I couldn't tell either. But essentially, there was a move that happened that he recognized somehow that the safe house had become compromised. Which, knowing how this ends, is accurate. It was it was accurate that that safe house had to have been compromised because we know how this this scene's going to end here. Right. The, the Gilead is is onto them. Right. Apparently. Right. Onto the airstrip. So then. That would make sense that they would have the step before that, which would be the safe house. Yeah. Which means, thank God she ran. And thank God she actually did leave with the guy with the truck with the slats and then did have to just 
if she hadn't forced this guy to take her home with him, she would have been caught because that would have been the step before the safe house. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, she was like following the right instinct to like go and make him take you. What do you think about the fact that she like stood her ground in front of the truck? Was there like any fear that he was just going to like run her over? No, that's why she did it. She had to just bet that someone that would get into this kind of position would have the depth of human feeling that they couldn't just run over another person. You know, that's not what they're about. They're they're actually here to save people, not run over people. So she was just gambling on that. A very safe bet, as it turns out, because the guy didn't didn't know what to do. And he couldn't really leave her there because, as we pointed out, it's it's really just a big shed. It's not a place for a person to try to. Oh, and I think that it's exactly what we just said. This is reverse dominoes. If the safe house is compromised and this is the step before the safe house, how is this place not the next place to be figured out? And she's just going to say, here's what this guy looked like. Let me tell you exactly who he is. You know, yeah. like so then he's compromised in many ways as well, because he's the go between of those two spots. So then if one's compromised and the other one's not and you're the go between, you're in bad, bad trouble. You know, what did you think when they show the next morning and his truck is pulling up behind those those very governmental looking buildings. I was very, very concerned because, you know, when we saw the previous episode that we realized that like Aunt Lydia's place was kind of like this large, remember we were saying, is this like a church? Is this like a university, a school? What is this exactly? Which we know it's, it is a school because at one point they're like in a gymnasium, you know, and they have like the kitchen and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. That scared the bejesus out of me. Because it looked like they were pulling up to the back of a school, like a dormitory or something that had been built with government money. Very frightening. (laughs) Very frightening. So I was really relieved that they spelled it out for us. And they had like that voiceover of June say, so this is where we would have gone if I had, you know, gone to the right church, played my cards right, if I even knew I was supposed to be playing cards at all. Which I was like, wow. They showed us one Econo wife last season. And I think in that podcast, we mentioned it, that that was from the book, that Econo wives, and uh, they didn't say the word Econo persons in the in the book. They just said Econo wives. But we can assume that Econo wives are wives of people in this in this lower class of econo persons, right? Well, and we discussed the fact that there had to have been a large number of people to actually make, create like the infrastructure, if you will. So like they the have so drivers, many commanders, they need yes, another layer. Right. Those and, and it has to be this like servant layer that can't necessarily like live in your house. You can't keep track of all these people. You know, they already, I mean, they already had a family or, you know, this was obvious. They, they had a husband and wife and and a child, which it was interesting to me that it was an interracial couple and that that was not of issue because you would have thought in Gilead that might have come up. You know, mm. I always didn't know if with June and Luke, um, you know, being of different races, if that was if that was kind of like in the same category as having any of these other. So I was I was actually quite surprised to see his wife and see that it was OK to have interracial marriages. And because um, everyone else we've seen has been like lily, lily white. The Waterfords and all them. I mean, I don't think we've have, seen. Have we seen a black commander? I don't believe we've seen any anyone of any other ethnicity other than white, with the exception of Moira and maybe a couple of other handmaids here or there, but really very, very few. So this econo position, I imagine in my head, is sort of where Nick and June could have ended up in theory, right? 
Like mm-hmm. they could have. And like she said, like if, if maybe if she hadn't run, maybe if she had just accepted and brought Hannah and brought Luke and they could have been these econo people, had they even recognized that they were supposed to be indoctrinated way sooner and been on board and not try to run. Yeah. They probably would have fit into that econo class because the, 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 the driver's family includes a small boy who is roughly Hannah's age. So it's not like the econo people aren't having kids or, or things like, or that's the interesting thing. I thought was okay. So two parts about that. That was like real fascinating. Yes, they had a child, but that child would have been Hannah's age, which means they had that child before Gilead started. Yeah. Okay, so who knows? Maybe tubes were tied or something at this point, or maybe the man had had a vasectomy or whatever. For that some reason, she might have been a a uh, capital crime, though. <laughs> but not if he had had it eight years prior, before Gilead existed, or before the rules were in place. You know, okay. I don't know how old that little one was. Not probably eight, but um, but you know what I'm saying. Or maybe she did, she had a hysterectomy because of cancer or something. Let's just make up some real realistic reason why it would have been okay. You know. Okay. So, but here's the thing that was fascinating: the Econo wives' contempt for June, not from the standpoint of you're putting my family in danger, which would have been the most realistic and reasonable reason to be mad, you know, to come in and say, you even being here, you all three of us would be killed and my child would be taken away, blah, 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 you know? But for her to turn it on June and say, you walk around with those red capes and those winged hats, I can't even believe you just give your babies away. As if... This was June's choice, which let which just lets you know what each class has been told about each other's class, because they are being led to believe that the handmaids willingly are a part of this process and they believe it. They believe that these these women are demented and want to be having sex with the commanders and want to give their children away. Like how the woman was like, I would die before I did that. And June was like, yeah, I used to think that too. Wow. I mean, what a crazy window into the world of how they've been handling all these people. What did you think about that entire idea? It definitely fits because like the the handmaids have their own indoctrination school that they go to and then they're kept insulated from everything pretty much. And then it makes sense i mean it helps the universe cohere is that is that the right word um stick together better when little things like this make sense you know the 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 various classes being insulated from each other and not being and being told lies about one another well that's the most important portion honest to god is that you tell lies we were just doing um a world war ii book with our son and in that one of the most important things to tell the citizens who were not being rounded up was that the Jewish people were stealing their jobs and their money and their businesses. And all this stuff like they had to breed contempt within them so that there was no sense of wanting to reach a hand out and save each other because you had to think that the other people were out to get you and were, mm-hmm. and were doing something that you yourself couldn't ever do. And and your values were so much better or different than theirs. Better, clearly better, better than theirs. Um, and so it's it was fascinating that 
It was so thorough that this econo wife person, despite the fact that clearly when there was all that rattling at the door and June went under the bed and at first you thought that she had found a gun. Yeah, I couldn't see what was wrapped up. But and it, would that have made sense? Yeah. Yeah. Well, given that the man is engaged in a in a pastime that may cause people to knock on his door that aren't welcome. Yeah. And also, you know, the other reason why I thought it might be a weapon is because of when the econo wife told her to go in the kitchen, but don't touch anything. There was some part in my head that thought you should take like a knife, you know, and put it in your shoe or, or put it down your, your pocket or something. I don't know how, but do something to have a weapon, you know? And somehow when she said, don't touch anything, that was like, touch everything, June, quickly, look around, touch all the things, you know, because it seemed like there was something to touch then, you know, yeah. there's something that could be of help to her if she looked around. So I was really surprised when it turned out to be a prayer rug. And I'm assuming that was a Quran. Um, I don't actually know, but it appeared to be Muslim stuff that that would be highly illegal, very dangerous, more probably more dangerous than having a gun. I think more dangerous than maybe having a handmaid in your house. I mean, because you have you're that means you're like straight up against the entire faith. Yeah. When you talk about adaptability, um, this family fits that category pretty well, right? I mean, they're going to church that day. It's not their church, but they got to go. What I thought more fascinating is she said, you go to church. And what they said was, we did, we do a public profession of faith. That is very different than going to church. Not going to church. Well, we're going to get dressed up. We're going to profess faith publicly. Wow. I mean, that is some semantics, man. But that's, but it, I mean, so it's, I mean, if you listen to those words, that means for the sake of other people seeing us do it. Mm -hmm. And the fact that it has to be a public profession means like, you know, I, it, it's just something I have to do out in public. You know, I have to act a certain way. The, I thought that even their clothes and everything, the way that they make them dress in these like, weird like knickerbocker kind of clothes everything was like so weird they like had like the little boy had the pulled up socks to his knees and it was so like antiquated and um, i wonder if the state faith is catholicism is just straight up catholicism no i don't think so because remember they were tearing down saint whatever's church well maybe it's an adaptation of it then because I mean, to be fair, Catholics don't follow the Bible word for word, and they use the Bible like constantly. So yeah, I don't profession know. Profession of faith—that's like a whole part of the mass. Remember the we profess our faith. Sure. Yeah, and people just drone on for a couple oh minutes gosh. about this and that, and uh, it is right to give them thanks and praise. All that. That's my line. All that stuff fits in there. I and, say that part clearly. And then there's the whole approach to oh. not having kids, birth control. That's birth it. Birth control. The, the What's Catholic, the word? The Catholic approach to birth control is the same as the Gilead states, which is don't do it. So I wonder. I wonder if it's Catholicism hidden under some uh, some other other name. Anyway, I think it's uh, to be honest with you i don't think they're going to ever call it one particular faith i think that it's important that it it'd be, isn't it'd be stupid if they did yeah because i think it's important that it's a mashing of faiths in a way that's like really you couldn't have been the right thing if you will do you see what i'm saying because mm. then it's easy to say well you weren't you were methodist so that's not right and you were protestant that's not right but it's like if i don't really name it any of the things you know if i just call it gilead then you couldn't have ever been a Church of Gilead, you know, because that wasn't a thing before. But I think I'm on to something because when she leaves and closes the door behind her, there's this glass inlay 
on the door or above the door. I don't remember which. It is pretty clearly an adaptation of the Christian fish symbol, you know, the two arcing lines that form a fish with a little tail. It's like it's been adapted to become an eye, which is the the state under his eye, blah, blah, blah. I really stuff. love that you saw that. Yeah. And it is a Christian fish, though, not a Catholic fish. Yes. Um, and so, yeah, if you guys didn't check that out, when June is leaving after she's decided, and what did you think about this? She's decided to take matters into her own hands, dress up as an econo wife, and take off for the day. What did you think about this? Dangerous, but I think that she probably had a lot of things going on in her mind, including the amount of danger her presence put, especially the little boy in just by being there. I like that. I like that extra reason because I wasn't necessarily thinking about the family, but you're right. I mean, the fact that that the people like rattled the door, I mean, that would be enough to scare the bejesus out of me. And then, you know, she had that whole thing where, you know, she's been, she thought she could wait it out at the Waterfords. She thought that if she just sort of like held tight, that it would be okay. And, you know, it it proved to never get better. And so, you know, that was it. Like she wasn't going to do this anymore. And I agree that for that little boy's sake, I think especially humanizing him, having him be like, do you know how to play fire trucks? And her actually playing with him for a couple minutes was like, oh man, you know, like I can't do this to another family right now. And it was all for the good that she took off. However, I do not know how that family will explain why they need new clothes for the woman. Because, I mean, it seemed like the kind of thing where you have one ensemble, right? Right. So how's that going to work out? Let's not worry about it. They're in the past. In the future, though, is this train ride. It was very, I thought it was interesting to see that the commuter train, this is just a me being a nerd, but there's only like two cars, which was interesting for a commuter train. Those are usually several cars in a big city like Boston, right? And okay. then they, it looked it didn't look like a normal car to me. Normal normal cars are like streamlined, you know, they don't have a lot of other shit on them. And these look like something like an army might use, you know, they just kind of had that army coloring and, and um, I don't know, maybe I haven't seen the Boston trains close up. To and I'm going to have to leave this one to you because I definitely, you know, I don't. When you say like, what kind of car was you driving? I'm like, blue. Like, I don't know. I didn't pay any attention to the the deets of the actual commuter train, except for you're right. It was very short. I can only imagine, though, that it would take a lot less everything. You'd probably not keep up the other cars and stuff, you know, yeah. like I mean, it would require a lot of upkeep um, that if you're trying to ration everything. And again, if you only have like five guards, you can only monitor two cars as opposed to if you had like 10 cars hooked in and you were trying to get people to walk around and stuff. It would just be that much more dangerous. You're trying to you know, keep it clamped, which come on with the fact that so somehow she managed to get a map and it was like an accurate map. Yeah, I have to admit that I, I was kind of I must have been writing guys. a note or something Me too, because, because I, I, I didn't see where she got the map. And so all of a sudden she has this magic map to tell her how to get to the airfield. She doesn't share with us. That's where she's going. That's just... So she she takes a train and she's on the train for a long time and then she runs off into the woods for a while. And this all seems like a way to, for me, it seemed like, oh, I guess she's just heading north trying to do what Moira did, just sort of in a much more densely populated area. And um, so when she wound up at the airstrip, I was I was like, OK, OK, I guess now I know what the, she's been looking at. This, this has been a map. This has been the man's map. This has been the plan. It's just she kind of took it all onto herself. To do. I, when she basically OK, when she just ducked off that main road. 
that little path, I should say, and just started running into the woods. I was like, what? I mean, this is when I had to embrace that concept that like they don't have security everywhere. This is not as well, you know, like this tight, secure area because that was redonkulous. When we were watching it, our internet connection wasn't that hot. So it was a little stuttery in this section. When she was running, every time you got it like a, a new flash on the screen of her, the silhouettes that her body would make in the, in the gigantic, you know, Econo wife dress and all that. <laughs> I mean, this is just audio, so I can't really show you impressions of what she was doing. But it wasn't like she was some sort of jungle cat making her way through. No, it was, she was she like was... a very large, out of place target in amongst this brown wooded area. And it wasn't like dense forest. And I'm sure that they had to make it that way in order for us to be able to see her. But at the same time, you could blindly see her. Right. I mean, I would think if those officers that were watching from above had any amount of hearing. I mean, yes, sure, she got right off the path. And I guess he didn't notice, which was like, wah, wah. But then the crashing, oh, 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 the, the crashing that would go on would be intense. You know? Yeah. All right. So she gets to the airfield. Okay. So I was shocked that we made it to the airstrip at all, but we were totally there. That pilot with the gun. Oh my God. Again, you know, having to prove yourself, having to show the, the ripped up ear. Whoa. And then she climbs aboard and then that other driver comes along. And again, you guys, we had really crummy internet at this moment. So we were unsure if it was Nick, but all we could say was it didn't sound like Nick's voice. We could hear right. it wasn't him. And they picked another dark haired guy with big eyes. Eyebrows. Yes, it was like, oh my God, is that Nick? And are they actually meeting up? Surely they would like hug or something if it was him. But they didn't. It was another guy. And oh my God. We have that whole moment where she has to sit here and decide, like she recognizes she's leaving Hannah. She has those flashbacks to Hannah a million times during this episode. She is having all the all the baggage, right? Where she's actually in the baggage area, but then she's having the baggage of like I wish my mom was still here so I could forgive her. I would ask her to forgive me. I realize now that like being a good mom doesn't mean that you always do everything perfect. All the baggage, all the baggage. And I was so unbelievably proud that she was going to leave because if she had gotten out of that plane and ran back into those woods, I'd have been like, you know what? I think I'm going to turn this off now because it is so unrealistic to a survival moment for her to leave that plane willingly that that freaking Katie Bowman worries in me. She would have done something stupid in my heart and run out of there. And I'd have been like, no. So what do you think? Would you have stayed? Would you have gone? Could you have left? Plane would have been the best, best thing to do. Even, even though it's putting you further away from Hannah being right there with Hannah isn't really going to help her. You're, just because you're closer doesn't make it easier for you to do anything, really, in this case. You need help, and you're not going to get that from within because it's so clamped down. You're just all alone in there, you know? So if you can get to Canada, if you can get a, get to be a part of what they're doing and you can help or, you know, be involved in some way to be there and searching from the other side, then you have resources, then you have more people, then you have a, a, a real chance to to get Hannah back. But I don't, yeah, I agree that staying in Gilead and trying to try to try to get Hannah back would just be more of the same. And I think it was one of those things too, where it was being a hollerback girl. Like I can't keep playing their game and win. I have to take it to the next level. Like I have to do something 
bigger and more bold and then try to break my way back in. You know, like I cannot just keep doing the same thing over and over again. When that pilot gets shot and you realize and you watch that guy get yanked out. Mm. Oh, my God. What did you think? Both actors, um, Elizabeth Moss and the driver guy, really <laughs> sold it on the idea of it's of that maybe maybe going back to child or something like that, where your where your parents are taking you out of something that you don't want to be taken out of. Right. <laughs> yes. And you're clawing at the walls to stay in the fort at the park or whatever. That same sort of like helpless scrambling please don't make me do it, please don't make me do it kind of feeling. They both portrayed it very effectively well. I was really, I, it made my heart speed up. I knew, I knew what was going to happen, but it still made my heart speed up for them. It really, it made me so, so sad because it was like, we knew this was coming. I mean, we knew that within the story, there's no way that June could leave Gilead at this point. We knew because there was so much more story that had to be told from the inside. We knew that Nick wasn't with her. We we knew that it this had been almost too clean. You know, she didn't have enough scares along the way. It was all tension filled, but we knew. But I was just hoping. I, I don't know what. This is like. I uh, don't know what. I just thought maybe. Do you remember the first season of Lost when they built the raft and yes. they take the raft? The raft. And. and and the others follow them out there with a boat and then steal Walt and then break the raft and make Michael and Sawyer have to swim back. It's the same deal, right? Like you don't get to leave yet, even though even though we tease you, you don't get to leave yet. It's the same timing anyway. Uh, so I don't know why that struck me right then. Just like you said, there's more story to tell back in Gilead, just like there was more story to tell on the island. So yeah. That means if we go by lost rules, they don't get to leave for another two seasons. Oh, God. <laughs> and that's true. And and here's the thing. Like, now that we have um, Emily and Janine representing the people in that colony section, it's like we could and we already have Luke and Aaron and Moira representing the Canada people. We don't need more people on the Canada side. We'd have no voice on the inside then. You know, if they had flopped it and like Emily was still on the inside and maybe she got, you know, like somebody got in, somebody out. But Every, all the other places are represented. You knew she couldn't get out, you know, like you knew she couldn't. Oh, you guys, it was heartbreaking, absolutely heartbreaking. And, you know, I'm so utterly proud of the writers and of the actual character for being willing to put her head down and continue to go despite all this stuff, the baggage with the mom, the baggage with should she stay for Hannah? I mean, ultimately, I mean, my mom told me when we had kids this line that I'll never forget, which is moms have to do the hard things. They have to make the hard decisions. It's it's always ends up on the mom. And it's true. This was a hard decision. This was a hard choice to make. And I think she was completely in the right to get on that plane and know that if she could get out of there, she could affect more change coming back in, or at least being able to give information. She could say they're in Boston. Here's what the streets look like. They are using Fenway Park. Here's, you know, she yeah. could give them so much information that could then be used to actually break out all the people and staying just would have been dismal. I mean, she would have been one person in the woods with stolen clothes, you know, it was mm -hmm. never going to work out. So I want to hear what you guys have to think, though. Would you have, would you have got in that slatted truck? Would you just want to have hung out at the newspaper place and just lived out there as long as you possibly could? Would you have made the guy take you to the dorms? Would you have stolen the clothes and taken off? 
Would you have gotten in the plane? What would you have done? Because we have so many different forks in the road that June had to take in order to land her where she where she is now. And the biggest question I'll ask of you guys, is she heading right back to Aunt Lydia's right now? Or is there some other torturous right. awfulness that's much, going to lead? Much learning she still has. Right? Oh, my God. Well, thank you guys so much for listening. You can catch us on Monday and Wednesday nights on so many shows.com. Uh, radio show. TV talk. They call it for short. You should be able to hear this podcast on so many shows.com or dailyreview.com or catch it on iTunes or your favorite podcast service. Thank you guys so much for listening under his eye. Blessed be the fruit. Catch us on iTunes or your preferred podcast software. Our website, dailyreview.com, that's D-A-L-E-Y review.com, Facebook or Twitter, or wherever you find us, please leave us a comment and a rating to let us know what you think of the show. Thanks for listening, pot people. Thanks for listening to my mom and dad. You don't have to go home, but you can't stay here. Just go home, folks.